Psalm 24 in the Word of God. The 24th Psalm, please. If Psalm 22 asks the, the question, why, then Psalm 24 asks the question, who? This 21st Psalm was originally written for the occasion when David returned to Jerusalem from battle with the Ark of the Covenant. Let's talk about this for just a brief moment. This tradition of the Jewish people was first outlined in the 10th chapter of the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 10, verse 33 through 36. In the time of Moses, <clears throat> the idea was the Ark of the Covenant would go out with the Jewish people as they would do battle against their enemies. And what the Ark represented to the Jewish people was the presence of God with them as they were fighting their various wars and various battles against the people that surrounded them or the people that opposed them as they are seeking to live for God. Now, one of the striking features of the Ark of the Covenant is that inside it contained a copy of the Ten Commandments. Uh, we have every reason to believe that they were the ones that Moses originally had gotten from God. And then on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was something called the mercy seat. The entire Ark was fashioned from gold. It was, uh, you know, pure gold. And another interesting feature of the Ark of the Covenant is that it had the mercy seat in the middle and two angels of the Lord, cherubim, with their eyes covered looking down at the, at the mercy seat of God. Now this is going to become uh, very important for us as we move through our study of the 24th Psalm. Because one of the key titles in Psalm 24 comes at the very last verse where he says, Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This uh, title for God is a key title. We're going to talk about it when we get there. But just know at this time that the ark represented the presence of God and the, the, uh, the reality that God was the one fighting the battle for the Jewish people in the ancient days. Now, uh, the 24th Psalm was an entrance liturgy, if for lack of a better term, when the Jewish people and David would be bringing the ark of the covenant back from a battle and putting it back inside the tabernacle or temple, Psalm 24 was the song that they sang to commemorate the entrance of the Ark of the Covenant back into its rightful place in Jerusalem there in the Holy of Holies, whether that was the tabernacle or the, or the temple or both. Now here's what's important. And um, this is what I want to outline for you. In our study of the 15th Psalm, what you had was a description of what it's like for a human being to enter into the presence of God. I don't know if you remember that or not, but when we studied Psalm 15, the notes are available on the website and also the sermon is available on the website as well. But what we discussed in Psalm 15 was that it was also an entrance liturgy, but the entrance that the Psalm that Psalm 15 celebrates is our entrance or the Jewish person's entrance into the temple of the Lord. 
And the idea was, was that while when the Jewish person went into the temple to worship God, the two worlds of heaven and earth, where God dwells and where we dwell, those two worlds sort of intersect. They converge. And out of that comes a brand new and supernatural life for all the followers of God, an otherworldly life, a miraculous life, a life that can only be lived in the presence and the power of God. What's striking about the 24th Psalm is that it's also an entrance into the temple, but it's not our entrance into the temple, it's God's entrance into the temple. I'll say that again. Psalm 15 commemorates and describes what it's like when a human being enters into the presence of God. Psalm 24 describes what it's like when God enters into the presence of human beings. Psalm 15 celebrates humanity entering into the temple in the presence of God. Psalm 24 commemorates when God enters into his own temple. We're going to talk about this. This is a very important and striking feature of this psalm. Now, <clears throat> somebody may say, I, don't, I always like to say somebody says, just in case somebody does. But somebody may say to themselves, well, preacher, you know, we don't live in the temple or we don't live in Jerusalem. We don't have a temple. We don't have a tabernacle. And what in the world does all this got to do with us? Well, it has everything to do with us because... Psalm 24, when you get all of the, the Old Covenant language sort of off the table, uh, basically this is what Psalm 24 teaches. It tells us something about what happens when the Lord and human beings cross each other's path. So I have it written a little more dramatic here in my notes. The 24th Psalm asks the questions, number one, who is this Lord of glory? And number two, who will stand in this Lord's presence? Let us explore what the Bible says will happen when the two worlds of the human and the divine collide. So at the onset of our study this morning, I want to put an image into your heart and mind. I want you to imagine an Armageddon asteroid hurling through outer space at a hundred times the speed of sound, and it is on a direct collision course with the planet called Earth. You've got an asteroid the size of Cass County, Indiana, moving a hundred times the speed of sound and the trajectory, they cross the midway, the intersection, the crossroads uh, as the planet Earth and the asteroid. That is the only way that I can come up with an illustration to describe the power of the 24th Psalm. Uh, Christ, God, is a mighty asteroid. We are like the planet Earth. And I want, to do, I want to explore what happens at ground zero. When heaven and earth collide, when they meet, when they intersect, I want to talk to you a little bit about what happens at that juncture. Our sermon comes to us in two simple points. Roman numeral number one, coming from the text of Scripture itself, it's a question that was asked no less than twice in verse number eight 
He said, who is this king of glory? And then in verse number 10, who said, who is this king of glory? That's our first point. Who is this king of glory? Our second point is also taken from the biblical text. Roman numeral number two is taken from verse number three when he said, and who shall stand in his holy place? Who shall stand in his holy place? I have it written in my notes, Roman numeral number one, who is this king of glory? Roman numeral number two, who may stand in the king's presence? Who may stand in the king's presence? We're going to talk about this this morning. I want to show you um, the very first description. Really, all that you have written for you in the 10 verses of the 24th Psalm, all of that is a description and it's answering the question, who is this king of glory? And that is the question that the psalm asks and it answers that question starting in verse number 1. He said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Our first subpoint underneath who is this king of glory, we answer that question with he is the creator of creation. And this is important. Because the earthly sphere, this ball of uh, earth and carbon and water and protons and neutrons and all the elements that make up the periodic table, this uh, blue ball and green ball and brown ball that floats around in the atmosphere, in the outer space around our sun, this is the domain and the dimension to which God is transcending himself. The Bible says in Psalm 24 that the king of glory is coming. Where is he coming? He's coming to the planet called earth. And guess what he's doing? Immediately in this great psalm, God is laying claim. He's saying, I am the owner I am the creator. I am the authority. God, it's as if God's the keys to our world and to our universe are in God's pocket and he's walking up the stairs to the front door of the house that he has built that he has owns and he takes the keys out of his pocket he puts them in the lock he turns the key and he walks right into our world like he owns the place because he does and the way in which God, the way the, the, the psalmist declares into our hearts and minds, into our ears, the reason why God can exercise complete dominion, complete authority, complete sovereignty over the world and the universe, the physical universe as we know it, the way that God's able to do this is because he made it. That's what this is saying. God has the ownership. God is sovereign. He created it for his purposes and he will do with it as he pleases, when he pleases, how he pleases. He said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Notice there's two phrases, the fullness thereof and the world and those who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord and the fullness that has to do with all of inanimate creation and all non-human life forms all the way down to atoms and protons and neutrons and the periodic table all of that is the Lord's he created it and then the second thing he said the world and those who dwell therein 
All human beings belong to God. Whether they believe that they belong to God or not, that doesn't matter. The Bible says that they do. And when God knocks on the door and turns the key and walks through the doorway of our dimension, of our physical creation in our universe, God looks at everything that's therein, both living, non-living, human and non-human. God says, it's all mine. And he says, I have the right, he says, I have the privilege to do with these as I will. Secondly, not only is he the creator of creation, but he's the sustainer of creation. This is a very powerful, powerful teaching that comes from the 24th Psalm. Look at the second verse. He said, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. I'm not going to go into all that that means because it's somewhat controversial. But what we need to know about this second verse is that God both founded and God established. These are words which suggest to us that not only is the creation God's, not only is inanimate objects and animate objects, non-human and human, uh, living and non-living, the birds and the stars of the sky, the seas, all that dwell, uh, dwell therein, every single ethnicity group, all that belongs to God. But this second verse what this is driving home is the fact that God not only is the creator, but he's the sustainer. God created all the laws of physics. God created the laws of gravity, photosynthesis, all of everything, all of the uh, science that goes into how our world and our universe works. God is the one who created that. It's not good enough to just say that God is the creator. The psalmist goes on to say that God is the sustainer. This harkens to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. And it is God himself who is the compelling factor which brings order to the chaos of creation. I'll say that again. It is God himself which imposes order upon the chaos of creation. Now here you have something. Have you? I, this just hit me, by, by the way, the last few days I've been meditating on this. You know how there's always this sort of idea. Um, why do we have the, what is this new tropical storm that we've got? Isaiah's going on and then you had Hurricane Katrina and you had tornadoes that ripped through Joplin, Missouri several years ago. You had the tsunami that occurred uh, and uh, caused the Fukushima destruction in Japan. You've got, you know, landslides and you've got all these Mount St. Helens explodes. You've got all these natural disasters. And what this second verse is trying to tell us is this, is that God himself is the one who holds the chaos of creation at bay. God originally created the heavens and the earth. He called forth light from darkness. He separated the light from the day. The earth was without form and void, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. And out of that, God brings order from chaos. God imposes the laws of science that we know now that have brought life, the flourishing life to the planet called earth. God is the one who created all of the laws of physics which keep all of us firmly planted here on the terra firma. It's God who is both the creator and the sustainer of our world. 
I really like this verse. I've mentioned this to you before. It's Colossians chapter 1, 16 and 17. For sake of time, I'll read it. You can write it in your notes. The Bible said, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Isn't that wonderful? So here is the immediate picture that the psalm is painting. God has all rights. God has all privileges. God has all authority to enter into our space, into our realm, into the, into the physical creation. Why? Because he is the one who's holding it together to begin with. And if God is not present in our world, if God is not present in the physical creation, it will all descend into chaos, disorder, and disarray, and you and I will cease to exist. It's the very presence of God, the very power of God that holds all things together all the time. All beings, both terrestrial and celestial, owe their existence to the one and true God, His Son Jesus Christ, and the blessed Holy Spirit. God Himself is the Most High, the Lord of hosts, the Captain of the Lord's hosts. Who is this King of glory? Well, He is the Creator and He is the Sustainer. All of our physical world, the universe that we live in, we are dependent upon our Creator and His presence in order that the chaos would be held at bay and that God would continue to sustain order and life in our realm. This is a very powerful thing. What, what authority does God? Is God like an alien invader? Absolutely not. He's the owner, He's the Creator. And he has all rights and privileges to come into our world and do as he pleases. Now hold that thought. Jumping down in Psalm 24, he said, Who is this king of glory? In verse number 7, he said, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. All this is saying there are several metaphors here, and uh, a metaphor is a figure of speech. Basically, what this is saying is that God is a warrior. This is profound. God is a warrior. And not only is he a warrior, but he is a warrior king. The title of the message this morning is Song, <clears throat> excuse me, Song of the Ascended Warrior King. Because that's exactly how this psalm portrays God. Remember, as the Jewish people were coming back from battle victorious, and they were installing the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence and power of God that defeated their enemies. This is the song that they sang. And the key element of all the titles and attributes of God in this psalm is that God is a mighty and divine warrior king. You realize this morning <clears throat> that God is, 
God does not exist so that he can just bless the daylights out of you. God, <clears throat> God does not want to knock your socks off with his prosperity and blessings. God is a mighty warrior and he is coming. He is descending. He is ascending. And he is like an asteroid, a mighty Armageddon comet barreling toward the planet called Earth. That's what God is like in Psalm 24. He is a warrior. He has a sword and he has all power. He is the Lord of hosts, the scripture said. That means that the armies of heaven are at his beck and call. God calls the roll and the angels and the gods of the heavenly realms rally at his call and they do his bidding. They fight his battles for him. He is the Lord of hosts. Sabah is the Hebrew. Has the idea of spiritual beings who are great warriors. And there's a hierarchy amongst these warriors. I don't have enough time uh, to talk to you about that this morning. But there are ranks of the Lord's hosts. The Lord is the commander in chief of the heavenly armies. They do as he pleases. And guess what? In Psalm 24, God is coming to the earth and guess who he has with him? He has his mighty hosts. Hosts that are incomprehensible. Hosts that are powerful beyond our wildest imaginations. Host one of them who are more mighty and powerful than every nuclear warhead on planet earth. One of them. One of the angels of the Lord slew 300,000 Assyrians. One destroyer angel of God slew 300,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. These are mighty beings. They are dwelling in realms unseen. They have no physical bodies unless God wants them to have them. They are mighty, they are powerful, they are incomprehensible in their strength. And they are at God, our God, they are at His beck and call every moment of every day. Chariots of fire is what Elijah saw. Isn't that wonderful? Do you look around this church right now and see mighty chariots of fire surrounding us as we do the Lord's work? That's the way that it is. And the Lord is coming to the earth with an innumerable host. How many are his hosts? As many as the stars of heaven. How many are stars in heaven? They're infinite. They're infinite. They're infinite in number and they're infinite in power. This is wonderful. This is who he is. And guess who stands at the helm? The captain of the Lord's hosts. He is the true king. The gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the Amorites, they're not the true king. Yahweh Elohim, the God of Israel, he's the true king. And the idea, I really like this. He said, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. The idea is that his majesty, his power, his glory is so much that the temple has to stretch. That it has to expand to be able to contain this God. 
He is transcendent beyond our wildest imaginations. He's mighty. The Lord strong in battle is what the psalmist called him. The Lord of hosts. And the idea is that the Lord has the power and the presence to deliver his physical creation from all threats of chaos. And he also has power and privilege to grant salvation to those that seek him. That's what verses 3 through 6 say. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully? He will receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Salah. Who may stand in this king's presence? This is a striking question. The question which with we have to do this morning is, what happens what does it mean for mere mortals when the mighty celestial warrior king transcends himself into our physical creation? What does that look like at ground zero when God comes to earth? Does the coming of the Lord of glory, does his coming require any changes on the part of humans? Well, obviously, the resounding answer is yes. Number one, it's a striking question, but number two, it's a transformed life. When the Lord comes, He will be looking for His people to be living their lives out according to the profession that they make. He has clean hands and a pure heart, both inward and outward purity who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully. All of this refers to the moral purity of the Ten Commandments. Thirdly, God is looking when he comes for a holy nation. Remember that the Lord planned for the nation of Israel to be a witness to the world of God and his blessings. The very first thing that God tells Abraham in uh, Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 is he said, I'm going to make of you a mighty nation and you're going to bless the world. The, the purpose of the Jewish people, the entire, ra- the entire ethnic group. Let's look at a passage. I want to show you this. This is going to drive this home. They were to be a holy nation. What does that mean? Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Turn there quickly if you can. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The people of Israel were to be acting as a priest. The entire nation. They were a nation of priests. What do priests do? Priests meet with God on behalf of the people. The Jewish people were to be bearing the name of the Lord and they were to be blessing the nations that surrounded them. They were to be holy, they were to be separated, they were to be different. They were to be bearing the name of God. They were to be a witness of the glory and the redemptive purposes of God to unredeemed peoples that surrounded them in the ancient Near East. 
God says, when I come, I'm looking for you folks to be living into, living out your original purpose for which I created you. And then that's lastly, bearing the name of the Lord. Exodus 20 and verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What does it mean to take the name of the Lord in vain? Well, you probably should not be saying vulgar curse words that have God's name attached to them. But this means far more than that. To hold God's name in vain means to say that you belong to the Lord but not be living like it. The people of Israel were bearers of God's name. If I am a Christian, then I am to be a little Christ. I am to be showing Christ to people as much as I can, as best as I know how. I'm to be giving people Christ. That's what the Jewish people were supposed to be doing under the Old Covenant. And God says that this is all about how you are bearing my name to the world around you. When I, I'm coming in great power and glory, the Lord and King of all creation is coming to the earth, and what He's concerned about is, are His people actually living for Him? Or do they have a lip profession and not a life profession? Is it lip service to the King and not life service to the King? Now then, this is where the sermon comes together. Give me just a couple minutes and then we'll be through. By way of application, God demands complete obedience. Complete obedience. The psalm says that the Lord is the Holy One. It also says that only those who have clean hands, pure hearts, and know no falsehood, and who never speak ill or deceitfully, may enter the Holy One's space. When God comes to the earth in order to meet him on good terms, you must be perfect. Does anybody see a problem with that? <laughs> if God comes to the earth and he demands that we be perfect, then what happens when Armageddon Comet meets the planet called earth? About... A thousand megaton blast, 10,000 megatons. If you thought the explosion in Beirut that happened as horrifying as that was, folks, awful, awful. All those dear people, hundreds of them have died. Imagine a explosion a hundred thousand times, one million times greater than that. That's, the, that's what it's like when the divine transcends and comes into the world of the human. Why? Because God is mighty. God is perfect. God is glorious. He's the Holy One of Israel. He is sinless. He is faultless. He demands a complete obedience. Number two, it's a, it's a complete obedience. Number two, it's a collision course. Like a, like a computer animated projection of an asteroid shooting towards Earth, this great poem reveals an inevitable, inescapable conflict. We are the immovable object of the planet called Earth. God coming to Earth is like a mighty asteroid moving a hundred times more faster than the speed of sound. 
And when he touches down, there's big trouble for you and I. We are immovable, but he is irresistible. He is who he says that he is. He is, in fact, the King and Lord of glory, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, mighty in battle. And you can either meet him, confessing him, stretching the gates of your heart and humility, seeking to let him in, or you can meet him at the front door as he unsheaths his sword. The Lord mighty in battle. And if you do not confess him as the Lord of all and the sovereign of creation, the sustainer and creator of all life as we know it, you will meet him on the battlefield and you will be vanquished. You remember as he comes in the revelation with the sword of his mouth, the armies of Armageddon have no hope of withstanding him. It's over just as soon as it started. As quick as you could say the word go, Christ is victorious over the armies of the earth. It's a complete obedience. It's a collision course. It's also a conundrum. Here we have a problem. God demands perfect and complete obedience, and none of us can provide that on our own. God is like an irresistible force hurtling through outer space headed toward planet earth and it's an extinction level event for you and i we shall not stand no bunkers will hide you from god no place you can run but you can't hide in the truest and most literal sense from god God is like an irresistible force, a mighty warrior king coming to lay claim to what rightfully belongs to him. Number next, it's a cosmic conflict. Like every good Clint Eastwood film, you have the hero going into the town to meet the outlaws. Ever, like Pale Rider. I can't recommend that in church necessarily, but I just did. <laughs> uh, it's like a good John Wayne movie. The hero is coming. He's got a six-shooter on both sides, and you can't stand against him. He is the hero of the universe, a true and righteous and living Voltron, if you will. It's a complete obedience, a collision course, a conundrum, a cosmic conflict. God is coming to have a great showdown with all the outlaws of our universe. Number next, Christ is the king of glory. Now this is what's so staggering about all this. There was a time in human history when the Lord of glory, the king of glory, came to the planet earth. And you know that when the king of glory, when the asteroid and the planet earth, when they intersect, somebody's going to die. You realize that. If, Clint Eastwood, if you've wronged Clint Eastwood or John Wayne and they come to your town, it's big trouble for you. Just watch the movies, right? You will not stand. Well, that's the idea here, except what happens is when the Lord of glory comes, he does something that nobody would think that he would do. And instead of killing, he is killed. Think about that. Somebody must die, folks. The Lord of glory is inflexible in his holiness. 
He will stop at nothing. He is not accountable to Pharaoh. He's not accountable to Caesar. He's not accountable to Herod. He's not accountable to you. He's not accountable to me. We are the fullness of his creation. We are the ones that dwell on his world. And he is the creator and sustainer of all things. And if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't even exist anyway. That's what the psalm is saying. And he is coming, but what happens when the Lord of glory comes is instead of unsheathing his sword and executing the vengeance and the fury against sinful sinners that we deserve, what happens is the townsfolk, the outlaws, they win the day. But only for a moment. See, there's a twist in the plot of this Lord of glory coming. He does something that no one thought that he would do. Satan and his dark forces did not know what was going to hit them when they crucified him. In the death of Christ, Christ has put death to death. Christ has killed our greatest enemy. What's our greatest enemy, the Bible says? Death is our greatest enemy. You remember what God pronounced upon us in Genesis chapter 3. He said, the day that you eat thereof, ye shall surely die. And death is our great enemy. And when the two worlds of the divine and the humans coalesce, Somebody has to die. The wonderful reality of it is the first time the Lord of glory came to the earth, he's the one who was killed. And in that, he puts me to death. Let's look at several key passages. A twist in the plot. The New Testament tells us that when the Lord of glory finally came, he had all, all authority, all power, and all sovereignty to take back what was rightfully his, but instead of killing, he chose to be killed. Colossians 1, 21 through 22, you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. But in his death, he puts death to death. He kills death. Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. We have been buried with him by baptism into death. We have been united with him in a death like his. And we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He comes and he lays claim to us. But the way that he does that is by his redeeming blood. By his redeeming cross. By Calvary. To answer the question, who is this king of glory? Christ Jesus is this king of glory. Yet he is not a warrior king in the way that we think of. He came to us meek and lowly. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What he does is he uses his infinite military strategy. God is the greatest captain, the greatest general, the greatest warrior that the universe, that time and space, that all the created order, both seen and unseen, he's the greatest warrior that the world will ever know. And instead of him using his power, instead of using his glory to vanquish the powers of darkness with the sword of his mouth, he himself is vanquished. He does something he... Um, how shall we say, confounds the wise of this world. He outsmarts them around every turn. And the very thing that they thought was going to stop him actually furthers God's purposes for this planet. Isn't that absolutely stunning? Folks, God is so good, we can trust him. Let's pray. How about that?